When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Radio for a really great future. We're talking real money. Hi again. Welcome to Talking Real Money. I'm Don McDonald along with Tom Cock and our special guest with us uh, since yesterday. We just stayed here the full 24 hours. Larry Swedro, the, uh, the director of research at the BAM Alliance and Wow. Author of like 19 books on investing. Check them out at uh, Amazon or your favorite bookstore. And we were talking with Larry a bit yesterday about the basics of investing, and we wanted to continue that conversation on today's program. As you know, we've been pretty generic about the advice. I mean, we, you, we use the factors, we use, you know, profitability, some of those things, but we've been careful when it comes to alternative investments. Where are you on alternatives? To, I mean, it seems like that's all the discussion the last 10 years. Where are you on that the debate right now? Yeah, that's a great question, which has evolved over time as the financial markets have created innovations and driven the cost of investing in a lot of alternatives dramatically lower. So when I wrote my first book on this subject, The Only Guide You'll Ever Need to Alternative Investments, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, (laughs) uh, uh, most of them were in the ugly category. And to stretch to even get good, I had to throw in things like emerging markets and call them alternatives. Uh, however, the world has changed. Uh, about six or seven years ago now, the SEC introduced something called an interval fund structure, uh, which allows companies to invest in illiquid assets, which used to be restricted to public, sorry, private markets. And if you were an investor in things like private real estate, or private credit, or reinsurance, or things like that, you would have to use a hedge fund, and they would charge you two and 20. So I basically, because the research showed that these types of funds, the managers were capturing all of the excess return in their fees, and therefore, even though the investment would make sense, providing good diversification and good returns pre-expenses, it was not appropriate in my mind to invest in that. So now that world has changed and the fees have come way down. They're still more expensive than a typical index fund or ETF run by Avantis Dimensional. But the costs are much lower. And now you have access to highly differentiated, unique assets, which I think every investor should be considering. And building portfolios more like the Yales and Harvards of the world. So let me give you the rationale why this is the case to help our listeners. And I'll tell you some of the things, if you like, that I have owned. So my basic operating principles, which I think should be the principles for everyone who invests, should be as follows. 
first, the research, your, your principles should be based on peer reviewed academic evidence, not people's opinions. So what does the evidence say? Number one, it says, as you guys preach all the time, while the markets may not be perfectly efficient, they're so efficient, you should invest systematically, transparently, and rapidly and avoid active managers. And there are high expenses and high tax inefficiency. So if you believe markets are highly efficient, which we all agree is the case, then not only should you invest using systematic strategies, but then you must also believe it has to follow that all risk assets have to have similar risk-adjusted returns. Now, that doesn't mean similar returns. For example, we would expect uh, junk bonds to have higher returns than treasuries because they're riskier, and that's a risk premium as compensation. We'd expect emerging markets to have higher expected returns than U.S. And things that are illiquid, like private credit, people demand a risk premium. If you're investing in something that isn't daily liquid, that's typically going to be somewhere in the one and a half to three or four, or even more, uh, depending upon how illiquid something is. So you have to consider all of the risk. And that doesn't mean looking at just volatility and things like sharp ratios, which measures your return relative to the volatility. Because people care about other things like illiquidity, but they also care about the shape of the distribution. By that, I mean, are there big fat tails, especially if they're a left tail where you get a big risk, like writing puts on the S&P 500 wins most of the time, right? Because on average, markets go up or don't crash. So you're hitting singles, and then one day you lose 100% and you're wiped out. That's a pretty bad investment, right? Uh, on the other hand, people tend to love things that look like lottery tickets, the average return is god awful, but once in a while you hit the home run and they end up overpaying. So we know people care about these other things besides return and volatility. So we have to consider all risk. But if you believe that markets are fit, you'll have to believe taking risks into account that there's similar risk adjusted returns. If not, asset A, if it had higher risk-adjusted returns than B, money would leave B, driving prices down, and earnings would be unchanged, so the return has to go up, and asset A would get cash coming in, driving valuations up, but the earnings don't go up, so the returns go down till you're in equilibrium. So that means things like private credit, uh, reinsurance, life settlements, they have to have similar risk-adjusted returns. And therefore, since all assets have similar risk-adjusted returns, you should hyper-diversify is the term I like. Why would you concentrate all of your risk, which 95% of investors do, in one risk asset? So, Tom, I'll just ask you. You take this, the typical client you meet probably walks in, with something like a 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% safe bonds. Let's imagine, probably a reasonable guess, it might be, say, five-year treasuries, average, some, an intermediate bond, safe fund. And let's say they own an S&P 500 index fund 
uh, or a total market fund for their stocks. And if someone walked in with a million dollars and 600,000 in stocks, 400,000, I asked them, okay, how much of your risk is in stocks? The answer I get, even from most professional advisors, is 60%. But that's wrong because the stocks you own are four or five times riskier than the bonds you own. And therefore, almost 90% of your risk is in this market beta risk premium. You have no exposure to the size premium, value premium, reinsurance, life settlements, drug, you know, infrastructure, anything else. And yet, if you believe that all risk assets have similar risks, why would you make that bet? It's completely irrational unless it's too expensive. The, but we know that's no longer the case. That, though, uh, to, so some extent, to, to some extent, though, Larry, I mean, where do you draw the line? I get it. The S&P 500 60-40 portfolio is not well diversified. But if you have a, an advisor, someone helping you, or you doing it on your own, you've got the value, you've got the small, you've got the emergence, you've got the internationals, you've got all those equities, and then you've got bonds that are well diversified within the bond arena. Where do these some of these alternatives fall in your mind. I get private real estate because it generates a return. It's aggressive and it can be costly, but it generates a return because they're making money off real estate. I get uh, things uh, like uh, uh, the, the lending where there's an income stream coming in. What I don't get as an addition to a portfolio, except from a non-correlation standpoint, are commodities, crypto, gold, Metals, those kinds of things. Where do you fall on those that people are always saying, well, I should have some well, gold? Yeah, well, I'm, I've never owned gold, never will. It's had 2,000 years of zero real return. Uh, I like gold for a ring, but I wouldn't want to own it as an investment. In fact, it's not an investment, really, because investment by definition has to have an expected real return or you wouldn't own it, right? It may be a store of value in your mind, and the problem with gold is you can, there are very long periods where people buy it. Basically, you'll hear the number one reason is it's an inflation hedge, right? Well, you buy gold in 1980, 23 years later, with inflation running pretty hot at 4% a year, gold lost 86% of its value in real terms. It is impossible. You have to be really dumb to say something's an inflation hedge if it can lose 86% of its real value in a 23-year period. And yet I hear it all the time. Crypto is not an investment. Now, all let me give you the rules that I use uh, to, for any investment to be considered. Andy Birkin and I wrote a book, Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing. And one of the things I'm most proud about that book besides the fact that it cites 110 academic papers. So it's not our opinions we're presenting, presenting the academic research so investors can make their own informed decision based upon what the research says, okay? But in there, we created five rules that said, these are the th criteria an investment must make before you consider it for investment. I'm really proud because it gets quoted all the time Although I have to say, I'm a little annoyed that almost nobody quotes us or cites us. They just use those five criteria. <laughs> uh, so the five criteria are 
there has to have been a premium that is persistent over very long periods of time and, of course, economic regimes. It has to have been pervasive around the globe, across asset classes, if that's appropriate. It has to be robust to various definitions. So I wouldn't invest in value if price to book was the only thing that worked, but PE didn't work or price to cash flow or EBITDA enterprise value, because it might just been a random outcome. There's just as much logic. You're trying to buy something that's selling cheap relative to some financial metric. Momentum works. There are 50 different measures or more of momentum in the literature. They all work. So that tells you it's robust. It has to survive transactions cost. So it doesn't do any good if there's a micro cap premium of 3% and it costs you 5% to trade it. And lastly, there has to be logical risk or behavioral explanations why you think that premium should persist. To me, there's no evidence that gold meets that. There's clearly no evidence that crypto purely is speculation, not an investment. All the other things that I mentioned, for example, reinsurance. Warren Buffett runs one of the largest reinsurance companies in the world. You have a 150-year history of that industry. The reinsurance fund I own is basically running a reinsurance company for you. It partners with about 10 of the largest companies buying what's called the quota share. So they go to Swiss Re and says, you need capital. We're there to help you be a provider, just like the reinsurers provide capital to the insurers. So they come in and say, we'll take, I'll make this up, 5% of your entire book of business. You cannot cherry pick and say, you know, give us this bad one and this one. We're going to, we want your entire book of business and we'll own 5%. That has a very logical premium. You like being on, you know, you like buying insurance or would you rather be if, you know, you buy it because you need it in case a really bad things happen. But from an investment standpoint, would you rather be buying the insurance or being yeah, the let's seller? Talk, of let's the talk insurance. about another book you wrote as well. And by the way, I think your complete guide to a successful and secure retirement is your best book. I think it for anybody who's close to retirement, you should read it. It has basically every topic you're going to face in retirement. I think it's a wonderful book. But another book that I really enjoyed that was just a few years ago was the book you wrote about ESG, sustainable investing. Um, and by the way, I want to thank you for suggesting the Iroquois REIT, which I invested in, which has been had my best return over the last year, by the way. So at, at, you weren't recommending it. You just said this is one you could consider. And I did. And I think it's because I was trying to do the right thing. But my question to you is, this the ESG field seems to be very like changeable. It's like one day it means this, one day it means that. Has your opinion on that type of investing changed since you penned that book? Well, uh, like everything else, I don't give my opinions. I tell you what the one, the economic theory says, and then whether there's empirical evidence to back up that theory in support of it. So economic theory is pretty straightforward, uh, Tom. If enough investors screen out a group of stocks and won't buy them, what you and I do is irrelevant. But if you get millions of investors screening out, say, gambling stocks, tobacco, alcohol, just those were the trinity of sin stocks, for whatever reason, what happens to the earnings of those companies? Because people don't buy their stocks. Nothing. But what happens to their stock price, all else equal? It'll be lower. So if you don't change the earnings and the price is lower, 
then they have a higher cost of capital and you, the investor, get the flip side of that. Pretty simple. And guess what? You look at the data, the SIN stocks, the Trinity there, have outperformed the market by like 2 to 3% a year. The highest performing industries in the U.S. and the U.K. are not technology or, or healthcare, which most people would guess, but they're tobacco and alcohol <laughs> and gambling. <laughs> you know, that's been, and so you get that. So ESG in theory, if people want to put their money where their values are, should expect without question, and that's what the research shows, lower returns for expressing their value. Now, that doesn't mean it's a bad investment. You're just putting a price on your values. Now, let me add one other thing, which is really critical to understand and can make the evidence uh, confusing for people. And that's the when all else equals scenario. So now let's say, and what happens in all the research up till around 2017 showed exactly what I told you. The brown stocks outperform the green stocks. Let's call it 3% a year. All of a sudden that reversed. And there's a good paper on the subject that pointed out, well, from 2017 through 2020, green outperformed brown by about 7% a year. So the expectation was three worse, did seven better. So 10% outperformance. How did that happen and why? Was it because the green companies were earning much more all of a sudden? No. What happened is you the trend to ESG was very slow, like the trend to indexing in the 70s, 80s, 90s. So they weren't moving prices a lot. All of a sudden in 2017 with the Paris Accords and the earth heating up, climate change in the news, and we had a bunch of hurricanes, all of a sudden everyone was pouring tens of billions a month from a trickle, literally overnight, to tens of billions a month. That drove up the valuations of the green stocks, creating short-term capital gains. But what happens to the longer-term expected return then? If you're paying more for the same earnings. So the long-term premium just got even bigger for the brown stock. Now, we're only about somewhere the estimates are 40, 50% maybe at the max would be in ESG. And the surveys indicate that maybe we'll get to about 75 to 80% over a 10-year period. So in the short term, if that trend continues, there could be what I called in the book a greenium, where green actually outperforms because all this money is coming in. But that's going to mean that in the future, the brown stocks are going to massively outperform because it drove valuations even more. So the ex-ante should always be green stocks should have lower expected returns. But as we talked about in the book, they're also safer stocks, which is logical. Why are they safer? They're less subject to consumer boycotts, <laughs> right? They are less subject to environmental disasters and the spills and fines that can happen. We know what happened to Exxon uh, with with that uh, Valdez spill, uh, Bhopal, India, chemical company, you know, goes bankrupt. Those kinds of, so they have less risk. So it's not a pure trade-off of just lower returns. You're getting lower returns, but also somewhat less risk.
All right. Yeah. Real quick. What is the 19th book? When is it out? What's the title? What's it about? Uh, this one uh, is one I wouldn't have written myself, but a friend of mine uh, who is a hedge fund manager asked me to help him write a book on quantitative hedge fund investing. So he's really the main author and I've co-authored it with him to make sure we presented all of the evidence and it's so you're going to you're pitching you're pitching hedge yeah, funds now. Is that what doesn't it's sound like it's going to be your biggest okay. seller to date? I'm I'm presenting the evidence so people can make an informed. <laughs> I have never owned a hedge fund. Have no intention of owning it. But he has some lovely hedges around his house. Larry, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We love talking with you. You do help make it understandable. And uh you're a you're a you're a definite voice to be listened to. Thank you so much, sir. Yeah, my pleasure. Been too long, guys. Happy to come back anytime. All right, we'll have you back. Thank you so much. And remember, you can always go to TalkingRealMoney.com to listen to all the podcasts, learn more about what we do, learn more about the show, ask us some questions. There's all kinds of stuff there. So check us out, TalkingRealMoney.com. I'm Don. Tom Cox over there. Larry Swedro's out in Missouri somewhere. And uh, all of us hang around almost all the time talking real money. You realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future, so past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. That's a wrap.